0: So let me jump right in um, and point out that you do not need to take notes on everything, because I see people sometimes furiously uh, scribbling away. Everything will be on startupsecrets.com. And uh, if you follow on the hashtag or uh, on my Twitter feed, when we post materials, then we'll automatically give you notification of them. So these materials, because they're brand new, will only get posted probably in the next week or two. Uh, But you can follow along on all of the other materials that I'm going to reference at startupsecrets.com. So why are we here? Well, the fun part about starting a company is that there are so many questions. And in fact, the only thing I usually have is a bunch of uh, answers that could be frequently questioned themselves. And so we wanted to just get straight to the heart of some of the questions that come up over and over again. Like, you know, what's involved in a startup? What do I need to think about? What are some of the steps that I should be planning for? And all those kinds of questions are so real to people. And in fact, I just had an example of it today uh, in meeting with some of the iLab teams that we wanted to say, look, you're not alone. Everybody else has these questions too. And so let's develop a framework that'll give you a basis to think about them and actually take some action on them that doesn't leave you feeling like you're stuck, which is the whole goal of this. So one of the things that I want to point out is that we generally talk about frameworks for a reason, which is they're not answers. They're a basis on which to discuss and to raise questions. So please don't walk away tonight thinking, I've got the answer to how to do a startup. That would mean I failed. What I hope you'll have is better questions to think about what are the steps to take. And uh, we're going to use Paula's story tonight I'll introduce to give you an example of how it might pan out, which is the, the key to it. So the agenda, three parts. I'll discuss the Startup Secrets roadmap, and I'll cover a few of the key frameworks, like, as Jody mentioned, getting behind the perfect pitch. Now I know that you were all emailed in advance to to watch this, and I'm sure you all stayed up all night watching that and made vociferous uh, you know notes, plentiful notes on it. But um, I'm going to assume that for tonight, some of you didn't. So first of all, quick show of hands: those who were either at that workshop who have watched it. Good, my assumptions were right. Okay, a few people <laughs> in the back. So I will tell you that in order to put a really good investor pitch <coughs> together. Tonight is not going to cover the ground for you, but that seminar does, that, that workshop does. And so there's a whole framework on it there, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it. The other thing that's very, very obvious when you start a company is to figure out how to describe what you do in a way that's compelling. And So that's the value proposition. And that is next week's class. So if you find today is just you know, a taster for it, we're going to have a full workshop on it next week. I've got a fantastic CEO coming in who's uh, taking his company from nothing to just about ready to go public. And so we'll bring that to life. And then, as I said, Paula tonight will bring up her story. And then I'm going to have a special guest tonight, which we're very excited about, which is Grace uh, from NeoClosure is going to come up and share the story of, of a product that she's literally in the process of inventing uh, at uh, you know at the iLab here. So we're very excited about that. And we'll use that as an, an opportunity to talk about in the in the real world what's this like? How do you actually go from you know not knowing where to start to figuring out your first steps? All right. Big picture, we obviously could read all the literature on startups and think about this many different ways. But I'm gonna simplify it to two things. If you know where you're starting with a value proposition, and you know where you're headed with a vision, then what we're trying to do here is put a roadmap in between these. And so it's it's this sort of simple notion that okay, there's some sort of series of dots that you fill in in between. There's of course where it gets tricky. And uh, I didn't expect to have a special guest here, but I'm going to point him out since uh, we're lucky enough to have him, which is Stefan schambach Stefan, if you just want to raise your hand. We, Stefan and I um, have worked together for about a, a decade plus. He's the founder of Demandware actually, and some of you have uh, maybe heard the case study that Stefan took that company from nothing to a public company today. And uh, We just happened to be at the board meeting today and he was kind enough to come along. He can tell you the story is not something that is just as simple as this slide. But I encourage you to talk to him, and get an example of, again, a real entrepreneur who's done this live and what's involved in it. Because it sounds easy, but it's not. And there's a lot to this that we're going to at least try to expose today that is not so predictable. In fact, in the immortal words of Steve Jobs, you can't connect these dots looking forward. Mm -hmm. If you could, it would be easy. We would all just go off and follow the playbook and do it. So, if that's the case, what on earth are we doing trying to suggest that you should be thinking of some roadmap. Well, it's the old story, which is you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. But hopefully, you do know where you're going, and so we've got to try to figure out what are those first steps. And I'm gonna to introduce to you a framework, and as I said, this is not an answer, this is a framework to start thinking about it. And I'm gonna do it both from an operational and from an investor perspective, because in most of your ventures, you're gonna to have to get stakeholders or people to buy into it. So this is how I think about it. First of all, whatever you do, you're hopefully going to continue to evolve this business so that you take more and more of the risk out of it. Even if it's a social venture, the most important thing you're going to do, even if it's a not-for-profit, is to take the risk out of it so that it is more and more likely to be successful. The second thing you're hopefully going to do is to try to continue to increase the value in it whether again it's a for-profit thing that you're trying to turn into a business that can be sustainable, or whether it's a not-for-profit cause where you're trying to actually make sure that this is something that becomes self-sustaining. and Then the question is of course, well what are the steps you take along the way to do that? The first disclaimer is not going to be linear. It's not going to be this nice simple set of uh, steps that I'm, I'm laying out here. But I'm going to take you through them so you can get a sense of this and it'll come to life tonight in our stories. Almost invariably, people start with an idea. So, let's pause here for a second. Who in this room has an idea? Lots of you, okay. Any of you care to share it?
1: Okay, go ahead. So, it's uh, actually working with a student at Brown. It's, it's It's called Skillza. It's a way that within educational communities, people can link when they need outside skills to do a project. Skillza. How do I spell it? S-K-I-L-Z-A. Love the name. Off to a great start.
0: Okay. So- um, Is that all I need then? Am I done? Well, the great news is you're already branded. You're up on the world's <laughs> map here. So, Skilza. So, who had the idea?
1: Uh, the grad student.
0: Excellent. And what have they done with it since they got that idea?
1: They've designed a front end and they've gotten approval from Brown and possibly RISD to launch sometime in the next six to seven months.
0: So they've done a little bit of, they had that idea and they've gone off and started to create something. Yeah. Have they started to validate it
1: anywhere with anybody? Yeah, they did massive surveys and found that everyone loved the idea and wanted it like yesterday, so. Okay, and then what happens next, do you think? Well, it's running the app within the shibboleth of Brown and RISD and getting students to sign up for it and start using it.
0: Okay, so we're gonna see if more than one person can use it, maybe find that there's a repeatable use case for it. Yeah. So you can see what's happening here is, I mean, I've never heard of Skillshare before, but this is almost invariably what happens. Somebody has an idea, they have to confirm whether it's a good one, so they go and create something, they test it or validate it, and then they figure out, okay, well, maybe it works for a few students who we tried it with, but how could it work across the whole school? How could we make it repeatable? And then if they're gonna really turn this thing up, right, I hope they're gonna take it to lots of universities.
1: Yeah, we've got a list of 50 colleges and universities that are our target after we validate within Brown and RISD to grow it. Okay, but so it's only to use it, you have to have a edu. So a dot edu, but 50 is a lot. How many people in the team? Right now? Yeah. Two. Okay, it's very typical,
0: right? So now how do 50 people reach 50 universities, edus? to start doing this. Well, somehow we're going to figure out how to make this thing a bit more repeatable and scalable. And If that happens and we really want to make it an enterprise that succeeds, we're going to want to make it either profitable or at least self-sustaining. So, you can see where these steps come from. By the time you get to do what Stefan's done and build a public company, you have to get another word in here which is predictability because people don't want to invest their money in companies unless they see some predictability in them. And in fact, one of the reasons for the demand has being so successful is that they've created a level of predictability where people can say, oh, our customers tend to stick around for years in the, in the products and services. And so they've got a tremendously high premium value, which is what we hope all of you will find your path to, whatever yours might be. So these are simple steps. What happens in the real world? Well, I've got a lot of scars on my back to tell you that it's more like this. <laughs> And, and by the way, I could have done this squiggle 50 different ways, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, I see Stefan nodding at the front here. Paul, I don't know whether your experience is going to be any different. It's actually a little bit more like this, and you sort of bounce up off the bottom, and it's you know, it's quite an interesting journey. But the point about it is, if you know that, and you and your your expectations are that, then hopefully you can start to think about well, what should I expect along the way as the basis to prepare for that. So, let's take a couple of things here. What happens if your validation actually tells you that your product is exactly wrong? In fact, you know, you're know you serving the wrong side of a marketplace, for example, you actually need to set the supply side not the buy side. I've got that exact thing going on in one of my companies right now. They flip the whole product around. Is that a pivot or should I quit the business and change it? That's a decision you'll make at that time. And you have to be prepared to do that. You have to decide whether your bigger vision was still intact after you flip from buy side to supply side. And if it is, maybe that's a test you say, okay, I'll carry on. Then, you know, this repeatability idea, you might discover that actually you can repeat this over and over again by, for example, going out and selling it direct. But it's really hard, it's very costly, and actually it doesn't turn out to be a business that, for example, will get profitable or scale. Um, or might be a personal decision if it's not for profit. You decide that actually, this is really hard work and I'm not sure I'm up for it. We have old class on that. You know, what does it take to be a to be a founder? All these are decisions along the way to you trying to figure out you know, whether you've got a business or not. So, here are a few things that I'd like you to think about, because I don't want you to be surprised by these things. Almost in every, book, in every startup, there's euphoria that comes in the beginning. It's, wow, Eureka, I've got this amazing idea, the world's going to want it. And Then the reality sets in which is somehow the world, having heard skills does not beat a path to your door and just buy it. And So, that euphoria turns to sort of reality. And uh, maybe you figure out uh, that, for example, when you go out to talk to those uh, VCs who, who expect you to have a lot more than perhaps you, you initially did, and they beat you back and you, you can't get your funding, and you go through this sort of you know, iteration process, even the ideation stage to figure out you know, what's worth going after and building as a business and what works. That can be a tough process. I'll, I'm going to say the same thing I said to every entrepreneur at that point. If you still feel internally, that you really have conviction around your idea, even if everybody tells you it's wrong, it's a bad idea, it won't work, that is not their judgment. It's yours to make. Some of the worst sounding ideas turn into companies like eBay and Google that couldn't get funded in the beginning. Oh, there are too many search engines. You have to decide whether you've got the conviction in your vision and mission and whether you believe that can make uh, an impact on the world, make a difference, and then you'll, you can build some real value. Uh, nobody else should do that. That's got to come from within. Okay, so now you manage to raise your funding and you start to get some customers. And life feels great. Or does it? So here's another example of what's happened to me in my career. You get a customer, I won't mention their name, but they're a Boston large, um, it's going to be obvious who it is. Okay, Fidelity. Um, <laughs> fantastic organization, by the way. I mean, you know, I'm a customer of theirs. I love them. They have some of the best IT people in the world. I've spoken on stage, but they're an outlier. Fidelity is so unusual in the way they work. Uh, Cisco might be the same thing if you get them as a customer in the Valley. They do their own IT, they they build things their own way. So you have to be very careful here because what happens is if you get one of those kinds of customers and they tell you, oh, these are all the features we want. That'll take you off on a roadmap that's entirely specific to them, and it's a market of one. What's the problem with that? Anybody? It's
2: a market of one.
0: It's a market of one. Exactly. (laughs) Where does that word fit in with this notion of repeatability. It doesn't, right? So, you've got a real challenge if you get an outlier customer. And actually, it happens more well than you think because a lot of the early products that people bring to market, there are big customers who want competitive advantage, who seek out completely different ideas. Precisely because they're different and they want to distinguish themselves and the bigger they are, the more likely they are to be willing to take a risk at least in trialing. So, whole companies like JP Morgan, for example, have a lab that do nothing else other than this. Uh, they have literally JP Morgan Labs. By the way, they're not an outlier. They're, they're a good example of a company that knows how to, to do this in sort of a broader sense for mm-hmm. Wall Street. But the point about this is, don't get carried away on a customer's vision. This is why today I said to you two things I want you to be thinking about, your value proposition and your vision, because you're going to get pulled all sorts of different directions by your customers. and You've got to be careful not to lose your way on this roadmap to what you believe is the potential for making a difference. Okay, so now you get it right, and you start to get a few more customers, and the the business is starting to take off. So, what might happen next? Uh, funders come along and they give you a shitload of money, excuse me, but that's how it is sometimes. I mean, $500 million check just got written for a certain company. I'm not going to mention who because it's embarrassing to me that that happened. But, what, what are you going to think about that? You're going to think, oh my God, I just got a $500 million check written, I must be a genius. <laughs> Do you think that's true? I'm glad. Uh, well, even if it's 50 million.
3: Moderate.
0: What's the real ma- money that matters? Is it VC money? No. No, say more Jeff. Customer. Customer money, why, why customer money?
1: Because they're the ones that are going to use what you're building.
0: Absolutely, VCs are not your customers. In fact, dangerously, I think we have too much money in the VC system today. We've had the largest amount of money raised since the bubble burst, actually. Uh, and so it's easy for VCs to write you checks. That is not your customer, to Jeff's point. So do not fall trap into the trap of what I call the funding mirage. I wrote a whole article on this. The only money that really counts is the money you get from your customers. In fact, if you could fund your entire business on that, obviously that'd be awesome. And uh, trust me, I'd far rather, even as an investor, never hear from you and hear of your success than write you a check that you can't really use to build a marketplace. So that starts to go well. What could go wrong next? Well, you start selling a load of stuff. Does that mean you're going to be successful? (coughs) What might happen then?
1: What could go wrong at that point? Your pricing is wrong. Same or? Your pricing isn't keeping up with your cost.
0: Well, so that could be a great one. So, let's say your pricing doesn't keep up with your cost. What's your problem there? The more you sell, what happens? The more you lose. The more money you lose. Okay, that one is, is actually, of course, more obvious. And I think it's a good one to bring up because people do sell at a loss sometimes. But what if you actually are making a profit in gross margin sense and you, you're really starting to scale your business? Have you got a good business at that point? Do you know yet? What, what else could go wrong? You've
2: it might not be scalable. It might not be. It might not be scalable.
0: Perfect. What What might be an example of what wouldn't be scalable about it?
2: Um, well, an easy example for like a tech company would be like the the servers, the the software that you have may work for
1: a thousand users, but not work for a hundred thousand users.
0: Perfect. That happens all the time, by the way. Um, again, another board meeting, which should remain nameless. Um, Recently, you know, we're sitting there going, customers are loving this stuff, but unfortunately we're going to have to re-architect our product to actually scale to the level they want to use it. Okay, now re-architecting products sounds like, oh, yeah, just give that to engineering. Not really. I mean, it's basically the equivalent of taking a building down to rebuild it from the ground up for anybody who's done this. It's like starting a company over again. And what about all the customers that you had up to that point? Are you willing to jettison them, to move them to a new architecture, to tell them to, you know, I mean, there's huge work associated with this. So, what can happen here is, what I talk about is the business model challenge, which is you don't really figure out uh, until you get to you know, address larger customers or repeatability, whether actually you've got not just a pricing model that works, but even a delivery model that works, the way that you deploy it, install it for your customers, how, you, how much it takes to support mm-hmm. them, whether for example the technology will stand up, actually all ends up closing in a loop that yields you ability to deliver profitable value. That's not easy. and Business models is a whole subject to itself. So again, we have a workshop on that. I encourage you to come and attend that or it's on the web. But it's also the premise that at some point you'll figure that out. So I'm going to pause here and tell you that almost every really successful company, certainly that I've been involved with, at that point usually also has a near-death experience. Paula's nodding. I'm sure she's going to share it with you. So, what would be an example? Well, um, since Stefan's here, we had our near-death experience with one quarter where we got zero revenue. Uh, we had another one, we got a lawsuit. We had a couple more of which, which I won't bother going into detail, but before we figured out how to get this right and scale and become a public company. But I could give you countless stories about that. If you went and looked in the tech scene in general, it's the sort of common feature of successful companies is they have to almost pass through the valley of death to understand what it takes to build that company. So, if that happens to you, congratulations, actually. (laughs) It means you probably made it to a place that you have the potential to go off and figure this out. And all sorts of things change at that point. You know, I've changed CEOs three times in one company. They're all good friends, don't worry, I feel good about them. But there were different people that were needed at this stage, to go into execution mode to scale the company to get repeatability. So, you might end up changing your team, you might change your business model, you might change all sorts of things. That's okay, that's the norm. The point is to be thinking about this and not afraid of it, just recognize this is the, the startup roadmap. This is what's typically involved in it. And then hopefully you figure out how to get this to a point where it is scaling and you get some growth and leverage and to a place where more predictability You could take it public or have an exit, whatever it is that, that you're really looking forward to do. Okay, if that does not put you off now, I'm going to hopefully send you into a story that is more important. Most of what happens in startup is we have so much enthusiasm when we start down here. We assume everything's going to be up and to the right, much quicker and much much more obviously and easily than actually happens. But actually, even when it doesn't, I'm here to tell you that most of the companies that are successful today end up being much bigger than anybody ever thought. Okay, so let's tell you the Google story. When I was in the valley, I had a conversation with one of the investors who told me that they thought Google was gonna fail because it was impossible for the online advertising market to reach the $15 billion that was projected at that time for Google to justify its market cap. $15 billion sounded like a lot in 1999 for online advertising. Does anybody have any idea how big it is today? Any idea? It's a, well, it's an order of magnitude bigger than that. Let's just put it that way. Today, in terms of what's being The um, the market opportunity is huge, much bigger than that. We don't know how big it is. It hasn't been realized yet. But the point is, Google was never predicted to be anywhere near as successful as it is today 10 years ago. Even they weren't thinking that big. But the beauty of it is, they saw their way through all of these different steps, changed business models and all sorts (laughs) of things uh, along the way. And many, many stories are like this. So, don't give up because there's so much potential if you can see it through to being even bigger than you may possibly be dreaming. But you're going to probably have to pass through the valley of death and many other things to get there. Just don't be surprised by that. All right. So where do we start? Well, as you can tell, I'm not a believer that you just start with a blank sheet of paper and and model your way through. And So I don't care whether you start with a napkin sketch. Uh, Many companies start that way. Uh, Or if you're a product designer, maybe you start with something as basic as a product roadmap. That's okay too. Somewhere in there I'm encouraging you to think about these two things, this notion of a value prop and a vision and I'll explain why. And, um, and Then somewhere in there if you're going to raise any kind of funding or get support for it, I'm going to encourage you to create something in the way of a pitch deck. Even if it's for internally using it to recruit people, uh, even uh, obviously that's as important sometimes as raising capital, as raising your human capital. And getting people on the same page physically is is so important in a startup because it's all about getting everybody's energy working in the same direction. When you do that, great things happen. If You've got everybody running off in different directions, not much is possible at that point. So think about that and think about why this potential roadmap could help galvanize and unite and point everybody in the same direction to make that path that we just talked through that much more energized Mm. and for you to power through it. That's the notion of, of, of coming up with this. And then I will say for the obvious which is, even if you know it's going to be wrong, and even if you know it's going to be you know, changed all the way, the point is you're being mindful about it. You can have a conversation with people about it You can say, well, okay, we were expecting this and we learned this. As opposed to, well, we didn't even know what we were expecting, so we have no idea how to measure it or what changed. I mean, that's where things go wrong. So that's why I'm encouraging you, even if it starts with a napkin, to come up with this. Now, the first class that we normally teach after this, is called Getting Behind the Perfect Pitch. This is the one for those of you who um, have attended. It is all about understanding if you're going to go raise money, how will you actually get the investors behind this? What will you do to organize your story? So, there's a whole class on that. It's up on the site and all I'm going to do today is to give you a few elements of it. First of all, I'm going to encourage you to create your own checklist, doesn't matter what it is. But it might include things like you know, who's the team behind this, what is the value proposition as we talked about, how might you create that business model, how might you take your product to market, etc.? And at the end of the day, I'm gonna tell you it will be deadly boring if you follow my checklist. Unless you find a way to make it compelling as a story. So let's state the obvious here. How many times do you remember an advert based on just the product? Rarely, unless you've used the product or you've had some experience with it. So what do you see adverts doing today? They've all moved to telling stories. People are making mini movies even now around products. Why? Because the world remembers stories. So if you're going to go and pitch somebody, why would you tell them all the features of your product? As opposed to tell them a story about how it's changing lives. And that's what you've really got to come up with. really what this is all about is figuring out how to tell your story. And when you see the perfect pitch class, you'll see that I encourage a certain approach to that. But I'm going to bring out the essence of it today as a means to begin to introduce Paula's story. So, there are two things I encourage you to think about in this notion of what's your story. You and the story. And then the important thing is actually the intersection between the two. as Paula gets up to tell you here, I'll tell you one of the reasons I was absolutely blown away by you know, her approach to her business is because the first thing she did when she started to think about Equalogic <coughs> was to take ideas, and instead of you know scattering the ideas around and saying, well, which one is a good idea, to think about which ones was she and her team uniquely qualified to tackle as a potential uh, business opportunity. So that's the notion of you and your story. So, what's an example of this? Well, if you've been for example um, a nurse, and you are thinking about uh, developing a medical product, and you've worked for 10 years with all the problems around this particular follow-on to surgery, and you know what is really going wrong after surgeries, every single time this particular step is not taken, and you've thought of a way uh, to take that step, to diagnose it, to address it, etc. Do you think that's a good intersection of your experience with a potential problem? Yeah, unfortunately, that's not what I hear most of the time. What I hear most of the time is, "Oh, I've come up with a cool app. And I think it'd be really cool. I'm going to just go talk to a whole bunch of people about it." And I said, "Well, where did you come up with the app?" "Oh, it just seemed like a really good idea." Okay. How much time have you spent understanding the particular application of this? Well, it's you know, I've, I've played with my phone and you know. Well, let me remind you how many apps get downloaded and destroyed within the first ten seconds. So that's not a good example of what we want you to do. What we want you to do is think about where are you, like Paula, uniquely qualified to solve a big problem. So let me introduce Paula at this point and say, I'm very proud to have you here. Come share with us a little bit of how you began to introduce your story into the problems and, and challenges that you addressed.
4: Hi, so I'm Paula Long, um, the founder and co-founder of a company called Data Gravity. But I'm going to talk about my sort of startup experience prior to David Gravity. Um, so these are my box scores. So it was a little embarrassing. I put these together for a different presentation. So I've had one of each, right? So don't get too discouraged if you don't hit a home run ever, because that's really, really hard. Be very proud of the base hit, and don't be surprised if you um, either get traded out or if you get called on the count of rain. So all of these things are going to happen to you. So I joined an amazing startup uh, called Bright Tiger back in 98, 99. We managed to not be sold for billions during the internet bubble in an internet product, right? So that was hard back then, or at least have that evaluation. And what we had done, as you looked at sort of that, that roadmap of startups, we hadn't understood the scale of the customer. The product demoed amazingly. The UI was gorgeous, gorgeous. I loved it, right? We'd assumed where well, most websites would have, I don't know, 10,000 files seemed like a lot. Then we showed up at some of your favorite uh, websites, 100,000, 200,000, million. And so the product didn't scale. So it did great in the small sites. It didn't have any money and it, it was a disaster in the larger sites, and we turned it around and we actually sold it, um, but we, you know, we had to sell it because the technology really hadn't been designed for the customers. We didn't really understand the customers, we hadn't had a broad enough sense. I call that a base hit. Then, I joined a company called IronStream, and I got there just before the bubble burst. It was an internet infrastructure company, trying to get had angel trying to get his a round. Right at the time, stocks in the internet went from $100 a share to $1 a share. So that one didn't go. And so that one was a cool idea, but we kind of called it because of rain. So we had seed money. We didn't even spend all the seed money. We gave it back, because we knew that that was not a climate, that doing internet infrastructure was a good idea. In November of 2000, anybody doing internet was running for cover. By March of 2001, anybody who was doing internet was lucky to be surviving. So we decided to give the money back. So that's where I met my two co-founders, Peter Hayden and Paul Koning to start Equalogic. So we started, I'll get on the slide, we'll go through Equalogic, but that's where we found each other. And that was an interesting journey and I'll take you through the whole thing, um, right through to the acquisition to Dell, in uh, 2008 for $1.4 billion, so it was a good exit. I call that a home run. Um, then, you know, so I, I joined Dell. I promised Michael Dell I'd stay for two years. By the way, he's a really good guy, brilliant, understands product, understands strategy, really good to the Equalogic team. We were really good to him. I promised to stay for two years. I did, then I left. Um, so then I'm unemployed. I've never been unemployed since I was 14, so I had, you know, um, unemployed in January of, 2008, so I'm a slug for a little while. I run into a venture guy in the airport in August of 2008. No, excuse me, 2010. We got bought in eight, I left in 10. So August of 2010, he said there's this cool startup called Heartland Robotics, which is now Rethinks Robotics. Do you wanna go do robotics? And I said, yeah, I don't wanna do IT anymore, right? I've been doing IT my whole life. Robots sound really cool. I'm gonna go talk to these guys. And they asked me for a resume. I hadn't written a resume in 20 years, right? See my, my sort of my profile. So I must have wanted to go because I wrote one, right? And then I had to call people and say, "Where was I when?" Right? So I wrote a an resume and I joined Heartland Robotics. And I, I'm not like a math guy or girl, but so I get, but I, you know, I took it all. I graduated. So um, the first day I'm in there, and I'm kind of proud that I didn't do any calculus since I graduated from college. The first thing I see though is what's reverse kinematics for a robot? It's integrals. So I walk in there, right? And the first thing I see on the screen is some guy's integrals, right? So we're, we're doing control motion. Next thing I know, I'm having discussions about gear teeth, right, and cables through a robot arm. I know zero about this, zero. So I helped him find a really good person to replace me, and I exited, right? So that's the one I call, I call that was traded in the first inning. And that was one of those ones where I joined a great startup, but I wasn't a good fit because I thought I wanted to get out of IT, but I didn't really want to. And then after a while, I went and thought about what I wanted to do next, and I started the Data Gravity. And we're just about to raise our C round. We launched our company in August of this year. We won Best of Show at VMworld. I always have to say that. So proud. Um, And uh, we're off and selling. And we shipped our first product on October 6th. And shipping means you had a customer to receive it. So the difference between a beta and a first customer release is a PO. So somebody's willing to pay you, which is pretty cool, right? So we have our first customers and our first deployments and we're running. But we're gonna talk about the Equalogic story.
0: So one of the things, thank you, Paula, that's uh, fun about just listening to Paula is you already heard a real world example of a very experienced entrepreneur, who's already been successful, tell you what I was hoping you'd pick up earlier. She just did a much better job of it which is try to find an opportunity that you really have as your background, the right experience to address. That's a fit. And when you don't find one, even if you're poorer and you've had experience you know building great companies, just exit. No, no shame in that. It's just so much easier to work from something that you have the depth and experience in to be able to address than to struggle through it. So how do you do these two things? Well, next week's class is gonna cover this in detail but there are a couple of elements in this that are not in the class next week that I just wanna highlight for you. The first is what I call the valueless proposition. We've given you some examples of that. That's loads of ideas that you just wanna go build and test. Where's the value in that? The problem with that is you you don't know who you're building it for or why you're building it or what the problem is that you're solving for them. And so guess what? You really, it doesn't matter how much you test, you put your hand up. Go ahead.
2: Oh yeah, I, was gonna say, I, I come from the sort of user-centered design world um, yep. in the information architecture, and I've noticed, especially you know, uh, in the startup scene, so many so many founding teams early on um, don't have experienced team members that have experience with you know qualitative user research or you know quantitative research methods to really sort of understand, um, generate insights from users, to sort of iterate on the you know on the on the concept early on, um, and I've noticed that there's a real dearth of that. So people end up sort of trying to pitch something and trying to convince themselves or trying to convince people that, that, that this concept has value without really you know, having that, the data to back it up. or, or you know, and, and they would have been much better off if they could have pivoted earlier. Very well said. So this, this is the challenge, is if you don't know, again,
0: what you're trying to validate and for who and what problem or value that delivers right up front, then how do you test it? How do you validate it? That's why I don't use the word test, by the way, it, in that roadmap, I use the word validate, because you're trying to validate value as opposed to just test functionality. So if you can remember that, that's the obvious way to think about it, validate value. So I call this the if you build it, they will come hope. And it's usually that. And unfortunately, hope's not a strategy. So what I hope you'll get out of next week's class is a real value proposition. And I flip it around and I say, if they come, will you build it? In other words, if you already know who they are and you've already convinced them that this is something of value that they will pay for, should you now build that? That's a much better way to start a business. It's not that easy to do it though. So, what we'll spend a lot of time next week on talking about is, how do you actually define that? And then, what will you go through to evaluate it before you really build it? Uh, and design um, you know, something to really d- extract value from a customer. And again, I'm bringing this back. What I love about the Equologic story is what Paula did was, she was talking about solving a problem. So, she already knew what the problem was that she was going to go and address as the basis to build a business. and That is so powerful because look what happens now. Now, we're trying to build this value proposition, and Paula who spent years in storage, who's got great if not unique qualifications to understand this problem is very clear that if she builds it, they will pay for it. So, she knows the problem, she knows how expensive and painful it is, and she's going to bring that story out for you. That's how I want you to learn how to build value propositions. And I'm sorry for those of you who love the lean value, uh, sorry, the lean startup methodology, MVP is not enough. You could build a perfect MVP, but if you have no idea what problem it solves, you're gonna run up to this exact same cycle I'm talking about. (coughs) Viable for what? (laughs) If you don't know what the problem is you're solving, it could be viable for anything. So minimum viable problem is what I'd like you to start with. Think about what is the minimum viable problem of value that if you solve it, somebody will come. Okay, so, what kind of problem? Uh, When you follow my perfect pitch, you'll understand why I keep bringing up slides of the Great Wall of China. But that's something for you to find out by looking at that. So, I always say this, if you wanna build a billion dollar business, start with a multi-billion dollar problem. So, we're talking about Equalogic tonight, but since Stefan's here talking about Demandware, um, I mean, I might just have you join in for a second. What was the problem in e-commerce? I mean, I remember things like people were struggling with multi-channel and all of the issues of suddenly going online. Why don't you just quickly jump in?
2: Well, at the time,
0: that was in 2004, Uh, e-commerce revenues were growing, but nobody could run it. It was very hard for retailers. They didn't have uh, uh, software development teams on staff, or if they did, they would run after 2000, so they were in trouble. And I thought uh, this was early days for cloud computing. It wasn't called that, but I thought uh, if you can give them e-commerce platform as a service that they can handle over the internet, they may be better off. So what's great about DemandWare's story, for those of you who don't even know the company, is that they've become the <coughs> fastest growing and now the largest uh, cloud-based e-commerce platform. And I would say, so what if it wasn't for the fact that retailers don't want to spend their time on technology, they want to spend it on merchandising and marketing and brand development and everything else. So they don't want to handle that technology and what Stefan uh, effectively did was to say that's a problem for them, that's all distraction from their business, we'll just make it all available to them as a service in the cloud. So it was a huge problem. How big? $4.7 trillion market in, in commerce today, under 10% penetrated and growing like a weed in the teens. That's a big problem. So. That's what I think you want to find if you want to build a multi-billion dollar business. If, if you're building against a cause, find a big cause. You know, Something that's significant enough that you obviously feel like it's worth spending your life on it. So Paula's case in point was nice and simple too. Storage is a multi-billion dollar market, but she was smart. She went and thought about the initial market as being the mid-tier of that, growing at 60 percent compound annually, and it was drowning under its own weight, complexity of people uh, actually adopting and building these solutions. and So she could see, because she'd experienced it, it required these very specific skills and that the challenges of actually managing the complexity of storage, which was growing at this pace, were ridiculous. Now she was kind enough to share a uh, slide with me from the road show, which she never got to do because she got acquired by Dell beforehand, of what the, the market was looking like. and You can see spending was going up, but IT spending was not keeping pace. Storage spending was going higher, growing higher than IT spending and growing higher than, than GDP in turn. And what was going on was all this storage was actually not working. All sorts of problems with people even recovering their data when they stored it. Uh, so, all this idea of backups, great, until you try to restore it and you get it back and you can't, that's a pretty big problem. <laughs> so, I loved that. Now, Paula, why don't we have you back to share? What did you turn that into as a value prop and how do you bring that to life as a story?
4: So, thank you. For us, storage was not automated. So everything about data storage was manual. You actually had to take the disk and configure it yourself. You had to know about um, new, there was fiber channel. So when you talk to it in a storage area network, there was a whole new protocol to learn, a whole new security model to learn. There was just a lot of stuff a general IT person didn't know. And so the thought was, you know, everything else in IT at this point is automated. Why isn't storage automated? Why doesn't it manage itself? Why doesn't it scale itself? Why do you have to know more than how big do I want the container to be and who do I want to touch it? So we took something that was basically an erector set and we turned it into, you know, something that was a set it and forget it kind of a thing. You, You set it up in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and it took care of itself, and then you just provision. So our value prop really was, you could spend time building your own car if that's what you like doing, or you could just have one that took care of itself and you just drove it off the lot. And that was the value prop.
0: I said to Paula, the perfect value prop that she spelled out here is you know, in the framework that we use, it's everything, etc. The trouble with it, is, if you didn't have Paula just get up and tell you what she told you, this would be very dry. So how do I help you guys with this when you come to do this? Well, next week you'll learn how to use this framework, but when you're pitching, you need to tell a story, just as we talked about. So what's a good way to tell a story around a value prop? This is a simple one. This is the Great Wall of China, and imagine if your value prop was that you came up with the first brick. Sound dumb? Well, actually, the first wall of China was built, there's many sections to it, by the way, with sticks and stones and mud and, I hate to say it, but human bodies too. So it was pretty bad how it was built, and it didn't last long. So actually, somewhere along the line, somebody did come up with the brick as an idea, and it had a really high value, and you can see even you know different forms of brick, before and after, in this case, you know different qualities that lasted longer. So you want something that's graphic like this, you can see the difference between the different kinds of bricks here. And um, I'd love Paula now to tell a story in the way that I hope you will tell it too, of Equalogic's value prop—not just in terms of what it does, but what was the experience for a customer, Paula, before and after Equalogic of using storage.
3: So
4: um, we would. So it's sort of funny. We uh, we actually demoed to customers at the first sales meeting. So you'd have the you'd have the SE carry in an array, and we'd set up a SAN right as part of, storage area network as right as part of the sales demo. So prior to us going in. It would take anywhere from a month to six months to set up a storage area network and get data on it. So we go in to an hour sales call. The poor SE is carrying a box. that's probably a hundred pounds, right? He opens it up or she opens it up. They set it up. And by the end of the sales meeting, you've already loaded data. So within an hour sales meeting, you went from the talk about, you guys need to get to a storage area network till you're running one, right? That was the value prop. And then the benefits of the storage area network, we were lucky. People like EMC and Hitachi and NetApp were out evangelizing that. The problem is the customers we were going to didn't wanna pay the professional services or couldn't and didn't have the staff for the complexity. So it was a, it was a very simple thing. You, no, I, no, you can't do this. Well, you just did, right? And you could do it again and you know, you'll like it. And then they grew. So that was the value problem.
0: Thanks, Paula. So what's beautiful about this is it's obvious. She walked in and actually showed them. You know, Before you needed this expensive staff to maintain it, to administer it, to set it up, it would take weeks. Wait a second, we just walked in and did it in front of you and oh, you don't need to run it. It runs itself. That's a before and after kind of story. And that's what I'm encouraging you to think about, uh, even if you don't use that fancy framework I just gave you, is be able to tell a story about what's the impact you make, what's the difference? And then ideally, why can't somebody live without this? Well now imagine if you're a financial institution and you actually are regulated to be able to keep data for several years and you've got to be able to prove you can restore it. Okay, now we've got to have it. So for certain customers, that's obviously a value prop that's critical what what could deliver. And obviously what I encourage you to do is come to the go-to-market class. We'll talk about how you find those customers, how do you find out what you can do in a way that's that compelling. So back to this overview. You've now got your value prop, but you remember that twisty, Curve that I was showing about all the things that go on, customers that can take you off track. What do we need to do? We've got to keep somewhere along the line a consistency, a vision about where we're gonna take this. Because otherwise we're gonna get pulled all over the place. A partner might come along and say, Oh, we'd like to OEM your stuff. Let's, you know, off you several million dollars. True story, happened to me, and next thing you know, you're off on their track. Very attractive because you got several million dollars, but now what do you do to get back on your track? Well, unless you've got a clear vision you're gonna get off track. So, what do I encourage you to do? Again, we have a whole class on this, but the most important thing is to step back and say, forget about us, it doesn't matter what we think. It's not about the technology, it's about the marketplace. How will this market evolve? How will the storage market evolve? Or if you're, for example, in the healthcare market, how will the healthcare market? If you're in education, like Skillza, how will the education market evolve? And if you have some vision of that, it's gonna help you think about how might you lead it and how might your approach to it create a compelling basis on which to build a business. That's really what the vision and mission class is about. We spend a bunch of time on that in the workshop. So I encourage you to jump in and join that. Um, That's coming up in November 20th is that workshop. The one startup secret that I have from one of my best entrepreneurs is this one though. Be careful to check your vision is not a hallucination. Okay, how do we know the difference? Paula already gave us the answer. There's two letters, (coughs) go ahead.
2: Um, I know one, one was um, they actually had a customer buy the the product, so- Awesome. That's
0: validation of it actually works. Exactly, the letters I was looking for were PO, purchase order. When customers pay for something, it's not a hallucination. Until then, it's a hallucination, and don't get fooled by that because you will hear customers tell you, yeah, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. Okay, write me a check. Then you'll find out how much they really love it. And honestly, you've got to be willing to do that. In fact, as early as possible, go figure out what they would write the check for. And even go one step further. I used to do this often, which is I'd say, okay, I want your check. And they'd say, what do you mean? You haven't built it. I go, Yeah, you'll get the first version of it. And you'll get that first competitive advantage by writing me this check. And by the way, I'll build it faster because obviously I've got support more money. You'd be amazed, many customers actually will do that. They'll write you that check if you really are clear about your vision for them. We had one of our uh, best case studies in here talk about this, and you'll find it in the vision mission class, Salsify, which is a company that's doing very well today uh, since they were presented here last year. And they were getting customers to write checks before they were building uh, full versions of the product. It happens all the time. So, what's the difference? Customers are paying for it. Thank you, you right. So let's summarize on this piece uh, before I bring up uh, Paula again to talk about the full ecologic story. Hopefully you've realized that the, the roadmap, whether it's a napkin or it's a pitch to investors, or it's your business plan, whatever form it takes, is at least some form of a, a document or a, a basis for you to evaluate how are you going to make progress. And, and as you're making progress, are you really moving towards what you have conviction in, in taking your value proposition towards a vision. And if you are, then keep with it and as I said don't let anybody tell you you're wrong or it's not going to work because as you've heard there are many many examples of companies that supposedly would never make it that have turned into the you know the, the biggest companies uh, that we now consider you know that make up the nasdaq and nicer and so forth and that i have an article on this because i will tell you it's it's a huge challenge we talk out of both sides of our mouth, mouths as vcs we expect you to have value prop and vision and if you have too big a vision, we get panicked that you won't be able to start with something simple. And if you start with something simple, we get all panicked that it's not going to turn into something big. <laughs> you know, it's really confusing. So uh, I wrote this article so that people could think about how would they manage that trade-off. There is a way to do both. And like everything, it's about you know, establishing what are you doing today versus where you're heading tomorrow and what's the roadmap in between. So with that, welcome Paula back again to now walk you through what was the roadmap at Equalogic that took you to $1.4 billion.
4: More importantly, when we when we sold we had three thousand happy customers, we had a forty percent repeat business. We had we did independent customer SATs, the Yankee group ran surveys for us, we had a ninety eight percent customer SAT rating, and we called everybody that were the two percent that didn't like us to find out why not. And we wanted to know why we sucked, right? So it was important to know why you sucked and make it better. So don't ever assume you're perfect. And I love the the I say this a lot and say so everybody think this or the only the world according to Paula is, don't ask yourself just if you could build it, ask yourself should you build it? And then if you should build it, can you make money? Because if you can't make money, then you've gotta have a different revenue stream to pay the people you just hired. It's okay if you have a different revenue stream, but if the company can't make money, then you're not gonna be around forever, right? Again, unless you have a different revenue stream. So let's get started on the Equalogic roadmap. So no lie, on April 1st, Peter Hayden, Paul Koning, and I on Purgatory Road, that's where Peter was living at the time, uh, started Equologic. And we started with a list of really cool ideas on the board, all of them which were much cooler than the Equologic idea, except we knew nothing about them. So we kept coming back to Peter knew storage, I knew storage and distributed systems, um, and was good with UI, Paul knew network, network protocols. And we kept coming back to, well, you know, we're uniquely qualified to solve this storage automation problem. Maybe that's the one we should go solve. And that's the journey we went, we went on. And we were very deliberate about it. To say, if you can't have you know, unfair advantage <laughs> against everybody else, then your chances of success aren't as great. So we took that unfair advantage and made it real. And we were about to IPO. So if you go to, anybody go to sec.gov and read the various S1s, I encourage you to read them. So if you see a company that you think you want to be like and they're public, so you want to go see the demand story, you can go see all the numbers, you can see not everything, but you can go read it. Equalogic is out on sec.gov. We were gonna IPO, um, we'd gotten our S1 approved, they're about to do the roadshow, and we sold to Dell um, the Sunday night before the Tuesday, we were gonna start the road show. And once you start the road show, you're going public. So we got pretty close. And Dell bought it because the value prop was strong and it fit into the mid market. And we sold to Dell because we had a mission in mind. And we thought, this is a great mission. We just got a better arms dealer. So let's talk about this. So we were first time founders. We didn't know what we were doing. We took the first two term sheets we got and we said, woo we're off. How many people think that they would do the same thing? Come on, fess up, (laughs) right? So the economic times were gloomy. This was 2001, we just fought the the crash, so we were just psyched we got money at all, right? Um, And we were coming up with something that was totally non-traditional, so convincing people that this was the right thing was risky. We were betting on some emerging standards. So the number of people who thought we'd fail was huge. And the number of people who had advice for how they could make it better was really, really big. And these were smart people. So um, you shouldn't build a box. You should be a switch. You should be software only. Nope, we're building a box. You shouldn't use the iSCSI protocol. It was a new protocol over Ethernet for um, storage. You should bet on this thing called InfiniBand. We said most people who bet on IP you know, kind of win. So, no, we're not doing that. But these were really smart people. We'll give you money if you do IB. We won't give you money if you do IP. Okay? Guess we're not taking your money. Um, I mean, it sounds, but you have to have a conviction. You can't let people sway you, because we'd have been all over the place, right? Don't use SATA disks. SATA will never work, because the SATA wasn't out yet. Um, well, we need to get a cost model down for the mid tier to be in a SAN. We don't have a company, we don't have a price point. We can't sell it if we don't use that. So some people opted out. One of our venture people actually were the ones encouraging us to look at that and he was right. You know, so there were every, you know, we did all inclusive. So storage, till we got there, people charged you for every feature. We put every feature into the array and we said it was an all inclusive pricing model. So where our two biggest competitors, you know, if you were, it was like Dim Sum in a Chinese restaurant. Every time somebody came around, it was another $50 or another $1,000. In this case, it was like another 10 grand. We weren't doing dim sum; we were doing the all-inclusive menu, right? So customers loved that and I didn't have to write a licensing manager. So it worked out pretty well both ways. From a development perspective, it was easier, but as as importantly, customers stayed on because if you stayed on our support, you got more and more features. Um, We said, we're gonna go through the, the channel. They said, you're insane. He said okay we're insane that was Peter Hayden he pushed that hard and he was right so you've got to stay as Michael said to your original vision don't have stone ears listen assess and then make sure you're staying true to yourself because you know what if you're gonna fail it might as well be your fault right because pointing to somebody else is the reason you failed it's still your fault because you listened to them so you might as well at least have fun and if you're not gonna succeed at least you took your shot so I'm going to take you through the, the curvy in a real life one. And we did have several near death experiences. I'll only point out a few of them. So new company. 2001, we get our A round. Everybody's excited. It's tranched. Does anybody know what tranched means? They give you half the money up front. Then you get to do all these things where you fetch a bunch of rocks and then they give you the other half of the money. So how do you hire people? Because you're gonna go hire your friends and they have mortgages and kids and you're tranched. So you don't have enough money to promise them 18 months worth of income or a year's worth of income. So we, got, we, we did the fastest checklist of the tranche I've ever seen. Peter, Paul and I said, you know what? We could knock this off in a month and we did, but You know, we were surprised. We didn't even know what a tranche was. We didn't know you could say no, right? Because we're we're newbie founders. You know, we had two guys, we said yes. We're pretty far along. And then that sort of came up. So note to self, get a little bit more detail. Uh, We got really strong feedback um, from VARs and channel partners. But what we found was we didn't have a deck we, didn't, we, we went in and just talked and whiteboarded, and we found ourselves changing the story to make people like us. Do you remember ever doing that?
2: Oh, sure, At the beginning, you have to do it in order to find out what the right path
5: is.
0: Yeah,
4: but we thought they were liking our story, but our story was never consistent, right? Because we were drawn on the board, and they said, could you do this? And we're like, sure, we could do that, because we could do anything, right? And so we ended up very early on getting the customer deck in place and formalizing it So when people tried to take us left and right, we could start with something and mark it up because we could figure out which assumptions we were trading off because we hadn't baselined it. So it's very easy for people to like your conversation and and you'll find yourself changing your conversation based on their body language and then you'll think they like what you did. And then some VC will call for a reference and the VC will say they don't even know what you're doing. So you wanna be very consistent and concise and make sure when you leave, they understood the value prop and they got the right thing. So I did that really wrong in the first one. So now our series B. So we did everything we thought was perfect, right? We got, we did, the product was on time. The betas were good. We didn't have any, sell, we weren't selling yet, but we didn't think we're gonna. The market wasn't terrible people in adjacent spaces were getting great rounds, we get a down round. So we feel like we were getting, we feel like we we're succeeding, right? And then we get a down round. And why do we get a down round? I'm still bitter, <laughs> I'll admit it. I mentioned it to our VCs, everyone said so it ended up fine. I said, it's, it's perception, it's customer references, it's the environment, it's the, are you selling your story? It's, it's, it's almost impossible to know but you can't let that affect you. You can't let that affect you because it really matters. Can you get happy customers and can you grow? So 100% of the team stayed with us on the down round and we reloaded some people with some stock and then you know, we're still moving. We ship our first product. Um, it's very cool. There's actually people to ship it to. It does really well. Now what happens? Well, I don't know if VCs have the same playbook they used to have, but on page 32 that they never shared with you, item 16 or something, it's replace technical founder CEO with, with great rock star sales marketing CEO. Do you guys have that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's in the playbook, right? <laughs> they didn't tell us about this playbook. It'd be good if you could have read it before you got there. So Peter Hayden is doing an amazing job as our CEO. Um, they keep bringing in CEO candidates. We don't like any of them. So finally, they decide you're going to take this guy, Okay, Um, He wasn't from the storage space, probably a great guy, but not culturally compatible with us. So now we've got a new rock star CEO. The problem is he's country music and we're hard rock, right? So it's not really going that well. Um, Or maybe we were hip hop, it's hard to say. But it wasn't two genres you wanted to put together. So it wasn't culturally compatible and it wasn't a great fit. So. He gets a C round funding like that. He does an amazing fireside chat. He instills confidence. He's last, so it was a beautiful thing, right? Very strong, very smart guy. Um, Wasn't a good compatible fit for us, but the VCs trusted him because he made them lots of money in previous lives. Right, so I quit. So we're hanging out, he's on the banjo, right? I'm like wanting to do a headbanger thing. And I'm thinking this isn't working, he deserves a better uh, leader than me. So I quit um, and was you know, sort of a traumatic thing. Uh, I bought the, the uh, URL data gravity right around then, because I'm gonna go leave and do something else, right? Because I wasn't having fun. I didn't think I was adding value. And as a founder, I thought I might be disruptive. There's a lot of other things I won't share, because it's probably more of a beer kind of a thing. So I quit. So, you know, they, next thing I know, so when I quit, I agreed to help find my replacement. So I find my replacement, Um, she's on board in August of 2004. Um, It's now October of 2004, I'm done in November. You know, I'm singing Born Free, thinking mm-hmm. I'm gonna take the holidays off, go do something in January. And one of the VCs calls me and says, could you meet us for breakfast? So typically what happens is, you know, when they're, you suck cause you're leaving and you wanna go to do something new with us on the other side. Mm-hmm. Michael's shaking his head <laughs> yes, right? So don't assume that they hate you if you can make them money. Um, but at any rate, so I went to breakfast and they said, Would you like to be the interim CEO where we go find a new CEO? And so I'm a little surprised, right? So I'm the person running product. I don't know a lot about being a CEO. Um, So I said, let me think about it because it's a pretty big commitment. I wanted my family buy-in. So I agree. So now you've got, this company's rocket shipping um, uh, from a sales marketing customer acquisition thing. And now I'm the CEO who has spent that much time doing sales. And I've done a bunch of sales calls and I've been supportive of sales, but I don't know how the channel works. I don't know what we're supposed to be doing for foreign currency. I have no idea about warranty reserves, but there's a bunch of people who work for you that actually do, which is kind of cool. So it's okay to have a team that are experts and then you listen to them. And your job is to know whether or not they know what they're doing. Right? So your job isn't to do their job. Your job is to figure out if they know what you're doing. And this is where you need a mentor. I had this amazing mentor who I could call up at any time and said, why am I thinking about this problem? So tell me, my questions were always, how should I think about this problem? I never asked him to answer anything for me. I asked him to tell me how to think about it. So what should I be thinking about? What should I, what are the pros and cons I should be asking? How should I have this conversation? And sometimes you'd say, Polly, you shouldn't even be having this conversation. Just tell them we're not doing this right now. Or here are the things to think about, and here's what might go wrong or might not go wrong. So we get our 100th customer. Hooray for us. We're cruising along. Um, So as part of my being the interim CEO, we're now looking for a new CEO. I didn't want the job. I didn't really think I knew what I was doing. But it turned out I didn't suck at it. I just wasn't experienced enough, or maybe I sucked out and I didn't think I did, hard to say. But um, you should always be really analyzing if you're the right person for the job at the right time. Because you care about the company being successful more than your personal um, aspirations. And the moment your personal aspirations become more important than the success of the company, remove yourself. Remove yourself because you're now in a dangerous place. Any rate. So the first guy we meet is another rock star. That's not great, what's the music he plays? Okay, so he's in the symphony, right? I'm still doing, I'm still doing, um, I don't know, hip hop or something. So they're trying to get me to like him. And it's like, what is this, (laughs) match.com? We're supposed to be dating? And I said, I said, I don't think this works. So in comes this guy who knows nothing about storage, but he's got energy, and I say to him, do you want to see the product? And he gets all excited and he wants to see the product. And he said, can I run it, right? And then he asked me a bunch of questions about it. And I said, do you want to meet the team? And he said, absolutely, right? The other guy said, I don't need to see the product and I'll interview the team when uh, when when the board appoints me. I'm like, well, this'll go well, right? (laughs) So you can see the difference. So I'm thinking, well, this is probably not the right guy because he doesn't really know our market. He doesn't know storage so this is just before the holidays he comes back after the holidays in 2004 and he tells me what we're doing in the channel what we could do better how we could increase our market what are our product differentiations what's our value prop like he did homework i like this guy he knows channel cold he's very smart he wants to build a team he wants to build a big company and he cares about the product so going through with the board, rock star, soon to be rock star. We went for soon to be rock star. And his name was Don Bulens and he's an amazing man. And we were very lucky for him to join the team. And uh, you know he brought us together. So then what happens? The, so I'm on, I don't have a job anymore, right? I replaced myself, I'm no longer CEO. We have a VP of engineering. She quit, I'm like crap. Do I take that job? Do I not take that job? You're a founder. If you're a founder, your goal is to help make the company successful. So I apply for the job. I don't know. Maybe Don wasn't going to give it to me, but he did. I don't know that I did my resume for that one though. <laughs> but at any rate, so i go back to being and running product. Um, now it happens. So we're cruising, we're doing great. And then we had a major customer issue in the product. It had to do with scalability and we worked through it and everybody was successful, but it was scary. Because every time you add a zero to the number of customers you have, that one in a million becomes closer. So, you know, or that one in 10,000 becomes closer, right? Because if something's only happening once in a million and you have 100,000 customers, it's happening one in 10, right? So if it's only gonna happen one in a thousand and you have, you know, 500 customers, <laughs> it's gonna happen every other day, right? So we worked our through all that. Um, our CFO decided to leave. So we had a CFO team replacement. Um, We were building this really cool next gen product. um, And then the chip vendor had a problem. So that product went on delay. So we had all kinds of inventory, other kinds of challenges that could have killed us. Close your eyes, keep running. Sometimes closing your eyes and running is not a bad thing. (laughs) Because if you look too broad about what's going on, you'll get scared. This is also around the time I saw an interesting behavior and I'll be interested to see if, Anybody who's done this, on or Michael. Now it looks like we're gonna be successful. And people get more skittish when they're afraid of success than afraid of failure, because they don't want to be the one to mess it up, right? So decisions you used to be able to make like that um, became harder. I said when you're playing on the penny slots, you know, put in a quarter, go for it, right? When you're playing at the $100 table, you start to think about as you feed money into that machine, right? And so now every decision has bigger weight because we're being talked about as a company that's going to IPO. We win all these awards and it was an interesting behavior. And then um, next thing we have happened is we have a quarter. We were up and to the right. It was a beautiful thing. The graph was beautiful. It Could have been textbook. And then we weren't. Right. And then, you know, Don dug in and figured out why we weren't and we fixed that because you're not gonna always be up and to the right, but when you get used to it, it's like when you're in school, you always got A's. So if you like got an A minus, you could have freaked out, right? Um, Not that it, in this case, it actually mattered because when you looked at our chart for our IPO, we were looking at the charts matter to the graphs. So it is, I don't know if the the A minus really matters, but um, so that was a little scary. So we got that fixed. Our VP of sales decided to go and we got this new guy, Kirk Bowman, who had done scale and scaled Um, big sales organizations, really smart guy, um, very analytical, and helped take us through the whole getting ready to IPO. Uh, We get ranked above all these billion dollar companies as the best med tier storage array. Yay us. Don't get too caught up on your stickers, but they're cool to have. Be be caught up on happy customers, right? Um, We file our S1. I don't know what you thought, but I thought the S1 was the most painful thing I've ever done.
0: Well,
2: fortunately, um, we had a great team and great CEO, great CFO, they did most of the work, it wasn't painful for me at all.
4: So we filed the S1, you know, I thought it was painful because I was sort of on the side. We had a great CFO and a great CEO doing it, but I kept saying, well, this word isn't right or this word isn't right, because I always micromanage stuff. So we file our S1, it gets approved. We're about to go. And Dell came in with a phenomenal offer to buy the company and we chose to sell. At that point, we were profitable, which is pretty cool. Cash flow break even and profitable. We had over 3,000 customers. We had done trailing revenue. If you go look at the S1 for the first three quarters, um, was 90 million in the S1. And Q4 is usually um, a significant quarter for us because you could imagine, you know, we were on more than a $200 million run rate at that point. So that's a great story, that's a great, and our customers, 100% of them came with us, and we took really good care of them. So what did I learn? If you're gonna go into the enterprise business, make sure it's a really big market, right? So you've got a large adjustable market. And then you want world domination, so you want a really big vision, but laser focus on the execution, really important. You wanna radically simplify or change or add value to a task, if you can change the business model, that helps. You want to have somebody else to help you sell because you need leverage and you need access to customers, and customer acquisition is an important piece. And then you want to have a great team with really happy customers. Equalogic had all of that, and I think Data Gravity will have it in spades. So adhere to your vision, very important. Build only what's necessary, but you can't build what everybody else has or they should buy from somebody else. Right, you've gotta be innovative. You have to make money at some point, so you have to have a plan to make money. It's not a bad thing to make money, to give value to your customers. They want you to make money so you stay in business. Be relentless and ruthless. This is Don's quote about, you know, tuning the thing. Never assume you've got it all right. And then build a culture that's gonna stay with you through the ups and downs. And with that, I turn it to, back to Michael.
0: Come Thank you very much. First of all, before I sit down to ask a few questions to Paula, I, I'm going to encourage all of you to stay on at the end and, and do so personally too, because this is a story that you've probably heard this much of, and it's a wonderful story from a person who really can share it with you in a very special way. I don't know whether you you noticed it, but if we just flip back, uh, you know, to to Paula's chart here, there are at least as many things that were on the down, you know unhappy face side as they were on the happy face. This is the point about thinking about the reality of, of these roadmaps and these startups. So Paula, thank you for sharing this with us. Let me ask you an obvious question, which is now you've been through that, you know, we've got a room full of hopeful founders here. What would you wanna share with them to say, you know, if you've known it in advance, this is something to think about?
4: I think you wanna be very careful in who you pick, your venture partners. We got lucky, we had a good venture team. But you really, they're interviewing you, you should be interviewing reference checking them. I didn't know you could do that, right? So ask them for references for companies that are like you. And you know what, if they don't wanna give you references, you probably don't want money from them anyway. Um, Sorry, but-
0: No, absolutely.
4: Right, second one is it's gonna take twice as long and twice as much money as you thought. Your venture guys already know this, but they're still gonna torture you, right? So whatever you put on a slide for a date, just leave it up there to admit that you suck, <coughs> right? They're expecting it anyway, but they'll go back and remember the other date. And the second one is, re, third one is really, really think deeply about all the input you get. So don't dismiss it carelessly. But at the same token, if you're pretty sure in your gut it's not right, don't do it. Or test it with customers. Testing it with customers is a good idea too. And never burn a bridge. Because you could call, if you've got friends who know friends, you can network and find out, you know, what are vendors doing in this space. You can find out what the competition is doing. You can find out how products are doing different places. You'd be amazed at how much stuff you can find out. So network, never burn a bridge. Help people when you can, cause they'll help you. And that's pretty important.
0: Awesome, some great advice there. Now, one of the things that you brought up was this notion of a down round. So I talked to you about the happy side of this, but somebody gives you a lot of money and you feel great. And I said, don't get caught in a funding rush. I just want to reiterate what's on the other side too, which is I love Paula's story here, which is, you know, she was told that her valuation had gone down. That's what a down round means. But she didn't let that bother her. She paid attention to the customers <coughs> who they were buying and just marched on. So don't let these damn VCs get in the way of telling you whether things are good or bad based on whether they write you checks at valuations or not. It's got nothing to do with it. It's back to the customer again.
4: Don't assume your end value is anything to do with your VC value. Exactly. Don't 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 confuse those two at all.
0: Yeah, very well said. Now I loved some other things that came out here w- around what I think is core, which is culture. You, know, you were talking about it when you were hiring VCs, and then you made a point of it in your last bullet here. T- talk to us about the importance of culture. Is it on a scale of one to ten, where does it rate compared to things like product and go-to-market? And-
4: so it's in the top five. Um, it's probably the top one, because if you don't have the right culture, you won't have a good go-to-market, you won't have a customer focus. So everybody in Equalogic could be called up at three o'clock in the morning if a customer had a question or an issue, myself included. If you weren't that committed to customers, if you weren't gonna give up your weekend to answer a question, even if it wasn't with our product, you really didn't belong there. So it was a totally customer-driven, customer-focused. Um, also, there's, the life is too short. I said I wanna live in a sitcom, not a drama. So if you know, if we've got a bunch of drama people or somebody who's gotta be right or, you know, the louder and faster you talk doesn't mean you're right, right, just get rid of those people. It Sounds terrible, sounds heartless, they'll be happier in a culture where that fits, you'll be happier in a culture where that's not there.
0: Okay, so last of all, I just wanna wrap up here. Obviously, we've talked about the importance of having a consistent (coughs) vision. You emphasized it many times. Can you just say a little bit about what you think again, if you'd known it before, you would have said is important in terms of determining that vision, thinking about that.
4: I think if I'd known about it before, I would have, uh, you know, I don't know that I would have changed anything per se, but I think I would have not spent so much time beating myself up about him or second-guessing him if I'm right. So everything somebody said, I I went and spent, like, the next and hours probably measured in hundreds to see if that was the right thing to do because you know I, I obsess about everything. right? And so that was not necessarily a good point of my energy. right? But so you, know, you want to listen, you want to validate, but you want to dismiss quickly because you just only have so many hours in a day and they've got to be adding value to the company you have.
0: I also thought Paul made a great point, uh, which is how valuable it be, can be to have somebody as a mentor to help you through this. And so those of you who weren't here for it, last week we did a a workshop on mentorship and how to find and and get the best mentorship. So that's actually up on the web now. So feel free to go and access that. So Paula, thank you very much. Please do stick around at the end uh, for everybody to ask questions because this is a wonderful story. And I'm gonna ask one of our iLab teams to come up to help us uh, bring the uh, the workshop to conclusion. So thanks again, Paula. Thank you. So, now I'd like to welcome uh, Grace and uh, the team from uh, NeoClosure to talk to us a little bit about what they're up to. Absolutely.
5: Um, so, NeoClosure is actually a design that came out of a summer program that we founded. Um, at MIT this summer, um, so the whole aim of the summer program was to create clothing for people with disabilities. Um, so we invited eight different clients with eight different disabilities to come to our program and we asked them about clothing challenge. And so Neo Clojure was actually designed for one of our clients his, um, who is a professor up at Tufts. And for the last 10 years of his professional life, he's been wearing tearaway basketball pants to work. Um, so the reason is because he's a wheelchair user. And so if he's going to be using the bathroom by himself, he needs pens that will open wide enough so that he can use the bathroom while sitting down. And these tearaway basketball pens have these snap fasteners on the side um, which allow him to open it up wide enough while sitting down. And the problem then is that he has really limited hand functionality. So even if he can open it, he doesn't always have a lot of ease trying to snap them back together. So what the team did was to create magnetic seams. So they infused cylindrical magnets down the side seam of his pants. The seam can be pulled apart very easily. And then when you just kind of inch it back together, it will self seal back together. So it acts kind of like a zipper. So (laughs) what our value proposition is, Um, Is that it's really discreet and it's very sleek and it looks just like a fabric seam and this is very important for this population where often they get settled down with all these like things that are made specifically for a person with a disability and it kind of makes them stick out more than they want to anyway. Um, so, what we've done is to uh, make it really inconspicuous. Um, and in fact, it's even better than most of the seams out there. So for example, for zippers, it's actually faster. it sails faster than zippers. You don't need the hand function. And then for Velcro, which is the other um, fastener that people typically use for this kind of clothing, it's a lot quieter and it's self aligned. So you don't need to like patch it up together by itself. Um, so really um, we created this magnetic seam, but we believe that it goes beyond the population and disability and our, our mission now is really to expand the design vocabulary for product designers. So we'll like to give them a new type of um, fabric opening or closure which will allow them to be able to make their products more accessible without compromising their aesthetics.
0: So I should have introduced Kavita too, who's also part of the team. Uh, I think we should give them a round of applause. I think this is a fantastic idea. So when I first heard this, first of all, I was just inspired. I love it when people can define so clearly as you heard a problem there. Imagine this person in their wheelchair not able to go to the bathroom and and feel comfortable to come back and just get their clothing back. And this is a fundamental need, uh, solving a real valuable problem. So thank you for being bold enough to step out and do that. Let's try and help uh, both Grace and Kavita for a second and think about how their roadmap might play out. So you saw this nice linear graph that I described that turned into the squiggles. Let's let's just help uh, ask some questions here. Paul, feel free to join us too if you if you want to too. So first of all, what phase are you at? And tell me a little bit about you know what what you've been going through at this stage.
3: Um, I think based on like this this whole curvature, I think we've gone through the ideation, and we're in the middle of the, we've kind of got a confirmation based on like the client who actually used the pants and he really liked it, um, but we haven't actually user tested it with more people. Um, we've got the creation per se, but we, we, we're in the validation phase right now where we're trying to validate that this is a useful product and can be used with for people with all abilities.
0: So let's, um just challenge you for a little bit. How much creation have you done? Tell us a little bit about where you are at in terms of is this a product you've produced once or many times or?
3: So during the the 10 week summer program, there was a lot of iteration that took place. They came up with the idea of uh, magnetic scenes pretty early on, but trying to find the correct kind of magnets which would actually work the way they wanted so that it's inconspicuous and normally when you have regular magnets, they go one on top of the other. So. It If you were actually to put those into seams, it would look different from pants that you were wearing right now. So uh, they went through a whole bunch of iterations to come up with the correct magnets that would work. They Also came up with various ways to waterproof the product, because if you're having it within clothing, it needs to last when it goes into a washing machine and a dryer. Um, But we haven't actually used it enough, where we ourselves haven't used it enough to say that, this works perfectly.
0: Okay, well great though, but you've got started. You've got some ideas about where you want to take this product, what you want to do, but and in the creation phase, you've got a bunch of questions. Let's let's get somebody else in the audience here. How might we help the NeoClosure team think about, what's their next step? What would be the key next step you take? How would you advise Grace and Kabita here? Go ahead.
2: I would think about robustness in different ways in which you could apply the product. Um, because when, when you were pitching it, I'm thinking, okay, um, is this for, you know, would this just apply to pants, or would it apply to other things? And then there's all these other, you know, uh, ideas you have, to, you have to, you know, sort of navigate. Um, s- making it easy enough that people can pull it apart that are with disabilities, but also making sure it's snug and reliable, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and things like that, um, whether, what types of clothing you could you could sort of apply to, you know, different seasonal clothing items, which then, you know, because winter clothing items would need to sort of be airtight, so you There's not air pockets. So you'd have to have sort of a longer, sort of seamed magnet that's, you know, that's not letting that air in. If people are going to wear it outdoors, right? And that might, you know, in, in, if you're applying the magnet, then that way that might bring up all kinds of other challenges. Mm. Um, but I think it, you know, I think it's really, really awesome. Mm. What's your name, by the way? Chris.
0: So for the benefit of the class, you make an awesome team member here. I hope you. <laughs> uh,
1: what
0: what Chris is actually doing is sort of going back and forth between two things you see a lot. He's asking some great questions about how might you validate the robustness. But also going back to ideation and saying, well, what are, what are some of the applications? Obviously, if you decided they're all gonna be internal applications, you'd validate it for internal usage. If you, you started to raise the question about external. I mean, there's lots of different ways. But you can hear also that if you don't decide what you're going after, then you don't know what to validate against. This is why the vision becomes so important. So let's go back to you for a second. Tell us a little bit about your mission and where you think you envisage um, taking this.
5: Um, so I, I think the mission is really to change the design vocabulary of um, product designers and to give them a new tool um, <clears throat> and kind of increase the ease of use of many products um, for people of all abilities. Um, so basically, what we're hoping to do right now is to kind of what Chris suggested, which is to put it into different types of seams, different types of clothing, and then really like walk around in them all day and see how well they work. Um, but also at the same time, we understand that. We're not gonna be able to concept, conceive of all the different uses that Neo-Closure is going to be used for, and so we're gonna start doing expert interviews with um, product designers and design consultancies, design schools, to kind of ask them, um, would you value this? Would this change the way you design? How much would you pay for it? Something like that. What kind of products do you envision putting it into?
2: One, one of the products that I, I think is a, a really, um, something that you can focus on next is, is, is baby clothes. Um, and and again, there the challenge would be making sure it's 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 snug enough so that the baby can't pull it off themselves, mm-hmm. right? But but it would be so easy for changing diapers and things like that. Yeah. Sort of, I mean, there's so many ways you could go with this. But but if you can keep focusing on that sort of core serving this, you know, this this disabled population, which is um, which is you know quite sizable, I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: Somebody at the back, a couple of people.
2: Yeah, so I'm curious why your your goal isn't to put it in the hands of people that want to use it. Why are you targeting designers as your users instead of, like,
5: the end customers? Well, that's actually two different routes that we're considering. So on one side, we're thinking of licensing this to designers and design companies. But at the same time, we really want to be able to put it into a form that... Like a mom or an aunt or a grandma can take and cut into strips like Velcro or the way zippers are sold right now and just sew it into clothing. So, part of what we've patented for this is also the way it's sewn into clothing, and so it's very easy. Um, the way we've formed the product, it's just two, three to four different straight seams, and that will lock it into place into a seam, and it's um, inconspicuous. Well,
2: if you have grandmothers that are gonna sew it themselves. I mean, that, they're not so much a designer as much as an end user, really.
3: Um, right, it's, it's sort of um, uh, what we've realized like while we're working with <clears throat> products for the disability population is that when you start focusing a product and talk about it being only for the disability population, it never reaches the other population. And we feel like NeoClosure is one of those things which could potentially be used by anyone. And could help a lot of people. So, our focus when we created, when the product was created, was to help people with disabilities. And we're definitely going to market that angle. But at the same time, we want to show that this can potentially be used by anyone.
0: So, let me help out um, a little bit here. So, I can see that there's lots of. Uh, actually, before I say anything, somebody else had your hand up. Do you want to? That
5: was my same question. OK. You had so, oh, oh.
0: make sure I have the same question fully articulated. How would you say it?
5: Well, I was, yeah, I was going to say, um, is this something, like who, in the same way, who's the end user? Is this supposed to be an individual piece that is marketed to an individual to use, or is this something that, you know, product designers would have to produce themselves? So that was basically. So it's,
0: it's who's the end customer, and. Um,
5: and does that affect how you design it
4: now?
0: And that might be an iteration once you decide, you know, uh, who's the end customer? You know, how would you actually build the product and, and apply it? Go ahead.
6: You know, it's it's really exciting that you saw someone who was challenged and you took that as an opportunity. And I, I hear about these the pants, I could see them envision them. But I just thought that was one area where you saw this magnet helping something close. So I would just wanna offer, before you think of it, just as cloth just as something to do for clothing. Could you allow yourselves to kind of open your head, you know, expand open for a minute and say, where do people try to put things together? Where is there a challenge? Is there, you know, a plumber who's got one hand in a wall and, you know, actually a magnet holding, I don't know, a, a nail or something helps out, like, before you just focus on one way, because, you know, that's the patent, I'm not sure what, if you're doing utility and all sorts, but I think there's a great magnitude of areas where this kind of thinking could be applied and that may actually then take you into other areas besides just clothing and seams.
4: Can mm-hmm. I be a contrarian for a minute?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we've got you- broaden here.
4: Yeah. Thanks. So you can do anything, but you should do something, right? And I say that a lot. So you got to be really careful with, I, I like the idea of thinking broadly, but laser execution and I'd be careful about all the different ways I tell somebody I was going to go off because they're going to think that you don't really have a, a focus as to how you're going to do the next 18 or 24 months or the next 12 months and as you explore everything you could do you will find out you didn't do a lot of things you should have done. So just just I'm great at that because i I've always have ideas. But the other one is a lot of what's going to decide what you can do is what is you think the cost of this going to be? Because that's going to tell you where in the market you're going to hit. So if this is 50 bucks, you're not getting it in baby clothes because they're throwing those out. But you might get it in disability because the value is so high that the cost is not an issue. So understanding your economics is gonna be really important to understand your market. Um, and that's sort of part of that, could you be profitable? Because no designer's could so make sure you understand that and don't underestimate what you're gonna need to do to scale that that down because that's gonna cause your market to change very differently.
0: So this is a perfect point to just pause and say, you could tell this is the beginning of a very broad potential conversation. But let me just take away two things, for hopefully, uh, for everybody to, to listen to. First of all, again, thank you both, uh, Grace and Kabita. I'm sure you've got many questions you could ask the audience too, and I encourage you to stay to do that. You can hear that if you, if you started out with no roadmap, it's hard for anybody to even engage you here um, on the one hand, you're getting fantastic ideas from people. You know, Chris is bringing up some ideas. Stacy gave an idea about how you might broaden it to think of a different market. On the other hand, you know, you're hearing from Paul, but the real world is you, know, you can do anything, but you've got to do something. Um, and you're gonna to need to figure out what to focus in. But what if you focus on the wrong thing? You know, how, how should you deal with that? And you were saying, well, we've got to iterate. Well, who are you iterating for? So you were getting questions about, well, is it the end user? Could be a very different business if you decide to do what you're doing, which is licensing it. Mm-hmm. So what might help you clarify all this? We've talked about it. As opposed to just having your value proposition, what might you do to, to bring this to a place where people could, as your next step, help you? Would you create a vision? Could you create something that spelled out what you really wanted to be when you grew up, as it were, as a business?
5: I think we know wh- we know the population we want to eventually help and we're just trying to figure out what we need to do to get there. Um, and does it, does it mean that we should just focus on like super profitable market for now so that we can then go to um, the population which is much smaller, much less profitable, but is really like the, the original population that
0: we want to help? And just to make sure we help you, there is no right answer. What matters is what you think. So it doesn't matter, what we're gonna encourage you to do is what you were doing here. Explore your roadmap. Just go through all these questions, go through all the discussions that you can to try to to draw that out. So you've got something to work from, even if it ends up being a napkin. But thank you for being bold enough to come and share this with them. Very good luck. We really wish you the best. (laughs) Okay, so I'm gonna wrap up very quickly and say something that I really feel very passionately about, which is that We're all missing something when we start our businesses, and it doesn't matter what it is you're missing. If you're going to find your path through this, the chances are you'll find that you may have had some team members that were wrong, for the long haul, as you heard, you know, many changes from Paula. You might have started with the value proposition that was about clothing, but as you were hearing from from Stacy in the audience, maybe it turns out to be something about closures, nothing to do with closing, closure. Or you know, Chris you know, takes you down a different path. But the point is, whatever you're missing, whether it's the, the product specifically or the go-to-market, etc., start with uh, a clear understanding that you as an entrepreneur do not need all the answers. In fact, I'm a big believer that incomplete standouts are better than complete stand-ups. In other words, if you came to me with a complete business plan with all these things mapped out, first of all, I wouldn't believe you because none of us have a crystal ball and it doesn't pan out as you heard the way you start. But secondly, I'd far rather hear that, hey, you'll pull along and you really deeply understand storage and you can see there's a big problem, but help me with the rest because that is a very complete and compelling basis to get started. So don't expect to have all the answers. Uh, in fact, I've written an article about this and please feel comfortable with the unknowns. But as you heard me say up front, do start with a place where you really feel like you're uniquely advantaged, just like Paula was. Uh, and I'm loving hearing the stories, for example, of, of uh, you know the companies in the iLab like NeoClosure. I also encourage you to, to spend as much time with the questions. You know, if you come to uh, a, a roadmap and you don't have questions, it's gonna be very hard for anybody to give you any help. Um, so we talked about this in the mentorship last night. And uh, you know, if, if I would ask you to do one thing to help neo since this is what the is all about, please go ask them, um, go help them and say, well, here are some of the questions we think you might wanna ask. Don't give them answers because it's their business. They should decide that. But go say, hey, what about this? Have you thought about this? Just like uh, Stacy did in the audience. Have you thought about you know going beyond this? Or, And that would be really helpful to them. That's a good way as we talked about last night, uh, last week in the mentorship that you might be able to help them with. And then if, as I always get asked this question, if you're missing the bucks, the money, um, it's not about the VCs. I think Paula gave you at least five reasons why you probably wouldn't wanna deal with a VC. Uh, So I'm up here ready to be batted about that, no problem. Um, Then there's a whole session on this uh, and we talk about funding strategies to go the distance. And one of the first questions I ask you is whether you should even raise money. Uh, and then I walk you through all the potential ways that you go through investment. So that's up there on the site too. Uh, and then just to remind you, almost everything we've talked about tonight, um, we're trying to build frameworks for, and if you go to the site and you, you look through these things where it's about building products and, and figuring out how to you know, take them to market, et cetera. If it's not on the site, then I wanna hear from you uh, because I wanna hear what your questions are that we're not getting to. And uh, again, wanna thank you very much. Please sign up for the future workshops online and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. <coughs> Thank you, Paula, and thank you, Neil Clover.